0: Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiecki, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecki, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecki. glad you can join us. This is Mission Evolution, bringing the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. This hour, we'll consider evolving into an ecological, nutritionally sound food system. With climate change and global warming at the forefront of ecological concerns, farming and ranching practices have come under scrutiny. Some factions recommend going vegan in response to the environmental impact of greenhouse gases produced by ranching. Others suggest eating organic to combat the harmful chemical fertilizers and pesticides used in farming. Are we missing something? Is there a third evolutionary alternative that revolutionizes our approach to both ranching and farming? With us this hour to delve into questions is Nicolette Han-Nyman. Nicolette is a rancher, former environmental attorney and author writing about sustainable and regenerative meat generation. Her latest book, Defending Beef, The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Nicolette, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: I, th- I think this is a fascinating topic. Um, you are not only a former environmental attorney, but you're also a, f- a former vegetarian. How did you go from there to here, where you're talk- advocating ranching and um, as being essential-, essential to our food systems?
1: Yes, well, I have kind of an unusual background, as you suggested. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, in Michigan. And um, although I was not from a farming family, my parents spent a lot of time um, on local farms with us. They used to take us out to pick fruit in the community and to go buy vegetables and eggs directly from farms. And I always had an interest in, I thought maybe one day I'd retire on a farm. I didn't think I would end up doing it at, you know, at a younger age. But I majored in biology in college, I went to law school, and then I began working as as an attorney. And um, several years into my law practice, I heard a speech by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who was talking about using his law degree and his work as a lawyer on behalf of the environment. And that really inspired me I applied for a job as an an environmental attorney at the National Wildlife Federation, and I worked there for a while. And then I had an opportunity to work directly for Bobby Kennedy Jr. in New York, and I I took that opportunity. And when he hired me, he asked me to work on pollution related to large-scale livestock operations, concentrated operations where the animals, you know, thousands of animals are crowded into buildings, mostly hog and poultry operations in places like Missouri and North Carolina in particular. And initially I thought, well, I don't really want to work full time on manure (laughs) because that's kind of what it was all about. But when I went to see the communities where these big operations were, I understood what the concerns were. I understood that these types of operations caused a lot of concern for water pollution and odors and air pollution. And the people in the communities that were the most upset were all longtime farmers and ranchers themselves. So it wasn't Uh, an anti-agriculture movement. It was people that were trying to protect quality of life and the environment and the water and just, you know, protect the rural communities. And that really inspired me to get involved. So for two years, I worked as an environmental attorney for Waterkeeper Alliance, focused exclusively on problems related to large-scale livestock production. And during that time, I met a lot of really good farmers and ranchers that were, um, we wanted to use them as models of of the good way to raise animals. And um, a lot of the people I was working with were part of a network called the Nyman Ranch Network. And the founder and head of that group was Bill Nyman. And I'm gonna compress a long story into just a sentence and say, I ended up marrying him. (laughs) And I ended up moving from New York City where I was living to California. And I was a vegetarian, I was an environmental lawyer. My husband now was a rancher and a meat company founder. So it was kind of an unusual union. And it sounds,
0: sounds like it must've had an adjustment phase to say the least.
1: Yeah, and it surprised a lot of people, right? But on the other hand, I always admired what Bill Nyman was doing because I was um, more and more convinced that if things were done well, that livestock production was could be a positive rather than a negative. And so what he was doing was always really intriguing and really inspiring to me. And um, then I began to live on our ranch Here in California. And I actually started to work a little bit on the ranch, um, just kind of uh, doing small jobs here and there, you know, checking a water trough or making sure the animals were okay, walking through the pastures. And I got very interested and I sat down um, with Bill one night at dinner and said, I want to learn how to do everything on the ranch. And this really surprised him because I was still, you know, a vegetarian at the time. I was uh, still intending to be, you know, continue my work as an environmental lawyer. Um, But I wanted to really understand the place where I was living and what was happening around me. And for about seven years, I worked full time on the ranch. And I also began writing books and writing about livestock production at that time, because that was when I really started to feel like somebody needed to be bridging, you know, the, the environmental community that I had been working for for many years, and the ranching and farming community that I was now part of, I felt like there were very different um, perspectives and there wasn't a lot of um, recognition of common ground. And so I started doing a lot of writing. I wrote essays for the New York Times and elsewhere. And I began writing, I wrote my first book which was called Righteous Pork Chop. And then a few years later, I started working on the Defending Beef book because I realized that there was a particular focus on beef and cattle that I thought was really um, often not correct. And so I wanted to make the case for beef and cattle as part of the food system and at the same time make the argument that we have a lot of work to do. You know, all of agriculture and the whole food system has a lot of work to do to make it truly ecologically sound and one that really produces very healthy food for all of us. So that's, that's how I got to where I am today. Um, not a vegetarian anymore, but I was for 33 years.
0: So what, what changed that for you? Um, when did you decide to go back to be an omnivore?
1: Well, it was just a couple years ago, almost exactly two years ago. And um what really happened was I'd been thinking for a long time about this question of eating animals and, you know, the ethical side and also the nutritional and health side. And all my work over the last 20 years had convinced me that when animals are raised well, they are ecologically beneficial. And more and more research that I was doing um, really convinced me as well that they're ecologically, they're they're nutritionally very important. And so um, I felt, like I didn't want to eat meat, but at the same time, I was starting to feel like maybe I should be eating meat. And as I when I turned 50 a few years ago, I decided to really assess my diet and make sure I was kind of eating the uh, nutritionally optimal diet, not just one that was, you know, good enough, but one that was really good and would keep me healthy for the long term and, you know, in the next few decades of my life. And I had my bone density tested and found out that I was already losing bone density and was already characterized as having osteopenia, which is the precursor to osteoporosis. So that was a real wake up call for me. And at that point I decided I would begin eating meat again. And then I did some research about, you know, how I should go about doing that. And, um, and then I began eating meat again and it was, uh, you know, beef our own ranch that my husband had prepared and it was delicious.
0: So was that quite an adjustment to you? I know that, you know, when we kind of build an aversion to uh, having to kill to eat, that you have to kind of work around it to get back to being able to eat meat. But truthfully, you have to kill a carrot to eat it too. Well, actually, we don't kill them, we eat them alive. So Mm -hmm. where's, where's the difference there? And how did you reconcile that for yourself?
1: Yeah, well, I think, um, I had always felt, you know, I grew up a kid playing outdoors all the time and then was a biology major in college. I did a lot of, uh, you know, learning and studying about ecosystems and how they work. And I've always viewed, you know, the human as part of the natural world, not apart from it, but part of it. And it always made sense to me that humans would eat animals if they chose to, you know, you could make a choice not to do so, but because... Because the whole way nature works is so cyclical, you know, everything has to die at some point and that death, whether it's of a plant, a fungus or an animal, will trigger the life of other other living things. And it's, it's all kind of part of a big, massive cycle that, you know, humans are part of. And so when I made the choice not to eat animals for those many years, it was really more of an individual preference, a comfort level. And so it was a more, not so much me thinking, you know, okay, I thought meat eating, meat, meat eating was unethical. Now I think it's ethical. It was more like, am I comfortable doing it? And the more I was around you know, ranching and farming over these last couple decades. And the more time I spent, you know, being on a ranch, you're outside all day, every day. So I see not just our own animals every day, but I see, you know, ravens and crows and osprey and many hawks. And um, I was just looking this morning at a t- beautiful little sparrow hawk on a fence as I was doing some of the chores. And, you know, we have hunting and eating of animals, animals eating other animals around us all the time. And it just became more and more uh, normal and natural to me that I would be part of that cycle. So when I ate the meat for the first time after 33 years, I thought I might feel uncomfortable doing it, but I really didn't in the end um, because I I just believe it's appropriate. And I don't think everybody has to eat meat, but I think for people who choose to, it's a very, you know, it's a good choice. It's a defensible choice ethically. And I also think nutritionally, it's a really good choice.
0: Did you personally notice um, quite a change in your health, say the osteoporosis and other things when you did go back to eating meat?
1: Well, the research, I read two books about bone density, actually, and I learned a lot. There was a lot that I didn't know about how, you know, bone health and bone regeneration works. But one thing I learned is that it takes that it's kind of there's seasonal fluctuations in your bone density, even throughout your whole life. But the, the majority of your bone density is built up in your early years and then essentially as an adult you're attempting to maintain that and to sort of regenerate it but you can't do much to add to it but you want to try not to lose it and i also learned that it takes about two years to really see a difference an actual difference that's not just a seasonal fluctuation so i have not had it retested yet but i do expect to see improvement because you know, in, the, in my research and in my readings, i learned that bone density is very closely connected to not just um, physical activity. That's a really important point and diet. That's a really important point, but muscle mass and muscle mass is really closely connected to how much protein you're consuming and other high quality nutrients. It's, and so I've made a big effort in my diet and in my daily life to make sure I'm um, building muscle mass. So I'm pretty sure I'm gonna see an improvement. I don't have the data on that yet though, (laughs) but I expect I will. And as far as my immediate ability to tell a difference, there was a difference. Um, I didn't have any, you know, some people say they have digestive upset when they start eating meat again or something. I didn't experience that at all. Um, But what I did notice is that I felt a lot more satiated. Mm -hmm. So for about 33 years, I kind of felt hungry all the time. And as soon as I began eating meat, that whole uh, experience vanished. And that was a really big difference, very noticeable. And I'm not eating huge quantities of meat, but I eat a little bit every day. And I really believe it's helping me you know, to not overeat because I don't feel hungry all the time as I previously did. And the other very interesting effect that I've noticed is that um, I've always loved to eat sweet things. And I used to, um, you know, for almost my whole life (laughs) when I'm eating my lunch, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch dessert. And when I'm eating my dinner, I'm thinking, what am I going to have for dinner dessert? And, um, eating meat really helped me with that. I noticed a dramatic reduction in how much I crave sweets, especially if I've eaten meat in that meal. So if I have, you know, like that first, um, meat I ate was a hamburger that my husband prepared for me from our ranch as I mentioned and I ate the hamburger and I just felt completely satisfied and satiated and I did not even think about eating something sweet after that it was really interesting it was an immediate effect and then we're
0: we're going to have to pick up on um on the change the changes that you've seen on the other side of a commercial break Nicolette and I will return shortly so you don't go away this is Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. again this is mission evolution missionevolution.org we're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness with us this hour discussing cattle ecology and nutritional food is Nicolette Hahn Nyman Nicolette what did you what do you why do you believe that cattle are essential to the world's, world's food system
1: well i think the most important reason is because almost half of the earth's surface, according to people like Dr. Lynn Hunsinger, who's a rangeland ecologist who just recently retired from, after 30 years at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley, Um, she says about almost half of the earth's surface is places where you cannot grow crops. And so all of those places, whether they're You know, it's too windy, too cool, too mountainous, too rocky. There are lots of different reasons why you can't raise crops in lots of parts of the earth. And those are the places where primarily the grazing animals exist, including the cattle. So sometimes in the U.S. and other places, you'll see um, cattle on very high quality crop land, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's really important as a starting point for people to understand, that the majority of the grazing and about 80% of the grazing in the US also of cattle occurs in places where you could not grow crops. So if you took the grazing animals off of, those land, off of that land, you, you wouldn't have those parts of the earth contributing to the food system. And the, so there are many other you know, um, parts to this puzzle, but I think that is a really important starting point. And what I'm arguing in the book is that when you have those animals on, whether it's on the sort of non-farmable land or on other land where you could grow crops, they always have an ecologically positive effect if they're well-managed. So the places where people see problems that they believe are associated with grazing, sometimes it's not actually due to the grazing, sometimes it is, but that's a, a result of poorly managed grazing animals because Essentially, the earth had enormous uh, herds of grazing animals for much of its history. About starting about 60 million years ago, we had herds of grazing animals. And for tens of millions of years, we had huge ruminant um, populations all around the earth. And the earth's open spaces, you know, people often think that uh, the earth was covered with trees, you know, and very dense vegetation all over and then humans came and cut down the forest. Well there's a little bit of truth to that you know that did happen in some parts of the world but there was also an enormous amount of natural uh, you know activity that caused the open spaces of the earth and so you created spaces that were grasslands and then spaces that were forested and then things that were in between and that was largely due to the presence of these grazing animals. They created these spaces the grasses co-evolved with these grazing animals. And then you had predators that keep, kept those animals moving and re, you know, kept their populations in check. And the modern day understanding of cattle is that they are replacing, they're kind of the proxy for those disappeared wild animals that are not very numerous anymore. We still have a, you know, a few herb, you know, caribou in the Arctic, we still have some Cape buffalo on the Serengeti, but for the most part, the huge herds of grazing animals that once were a very big part of their ecosystem are not there anymore. So the domesticated animals can take the place of those animals and have the same ecological impact. So I'm arguing so, they should do that we should do that. We should view them that way and treat them that way.
0: You mentioned um, that they don't do harm unless they're poorly managed. Would you go into that a little bit? What does poorly managed look like?
1: Yes, well, it's interesting because in the book I talk about overgrazing. Versus poor grazing. And one of the words I kind of object to in general, just is, you know, I don't really think it's helpful, is overgrazing. Because people often see areas where cattle have been and they think, well, this has been overgrazed. Well, often it's actually an undergrazing problem. But if you're managing them poorly, then you'll get a negative effect. What you need to do with um, cattle is you need to have them um, essentially function like these disappeared wild animals I was just talking about. The, it's optimal if you can to have them quite densely congregated and have them moved very regularly because the land needs to get the ecological impact of the animals the hooves need to press the vegetation and the seeds into the soil The mouths need to chop the vegetation off and prune it so that that stimulates growth and it allows more diversity of plants to sprout because they get more sunlight when you you know when you graze off the, the first sprouting um, plants. And the very importantly, the manure and the urine help cycle not just nutrients and moisture into the soil, but the biology that comes out of the animal in the, in the manure, it turns out is really important. All those, um, there are tons of different forms of life that are micro- microscopic in the um, manure of animals. And that has now been understood, just in recent decades, it's been understood that really helps trigger the, the subterranean biology, the, the, the below ground life that is the source of the whole health of the whole ecosystem. So there's kind of an upward cascade. And when you have a good, Management, you know, you get that when you get the animals off so they can rest the land, but you get the animal impact, and then you move the animals on. That has a positive effect on everything. It has a positive effect on the the diversity of the vegetation, to the diversity of the insect life, the diversity of all the life underneath the soil, and how much water is held in the soil. So these various different kinds of effects um, make a healthier ecosystem.
0: Well, we've been so far talking about where we have um, um, cattle grazing, where there it wasn't really friendly for farming. Uh, my my father was a well farmer rancher combination. He had animals and he had crops that he did. And he, after he harvested the crops, he would always turn the cattle out to graze on what was left, whether it was corn or, or beets or whatever was left. And then he would go and he would drag that and he would um, till everything back in. Is there a cycle of life, if you will, where farming and ranching can be beneficial to one another?
1: Yes, absolutely. I've been mostly talking about Um, the areas of the earth where you can't grow crops. But there's also this very important role of the grazing animals, exactly as you were talking about in your family system, where you have grazing that actually takes place on areas where you were also growing crops. So you have multiple different types of uses, and it's been shown in many different studies all over the world that where you have animals in a crop system, it actually dramatically helps regenerate the soil, it adds life to the soil, And I love the work of um, the farmer, Dave Brown in North Dakota, who's written a fabulous book called Dirt to Soil, describing his journey from someone who was just raising corn and soy, just large monocrop crops. But then he began adding animals into his system and adding more diversity in terms of the crops he was growing. And he, and he, the way he says it is, the more animals I added into my system, the more life I got in my system. So it's really that idea of having the mixture is really beneficial and it's becoming more and more understood that that's yes. what we should be doing in food production. It seems like our modern practices
0: have kind of painted us into a corner because we've separated everything. It seems like that seems to be what we've been doing, separating everything, Um, whether it's in medicine or whatever else. There's this separateness rather than the circle of life you spoke of earlier. And so we take cattle and animals out of the equation. Then we have to add fertilizer. And of course, we add chemical fertilizer. And round and round we go. Then pretty soon we're keeping the cattle all boxed up, being fed grain, and the plants being fed artificial chemicals and fertilizers, and uh, it seems like the soil is dying as a result, and the animals are traumatized as a result. Is this your take on it, and how do you see turning this around?
1: Yes, well, Wilda, you just summarized it so perfectly. That's exactly right. It's this bizarre pulling apart of the ecosystem, right, into these components, And an ecosystem doesn't function when it's all pulled apart. Ecosystems are about relationships between different organisms and they're about complexity. So when we the, what we've done with the modern system is, as you said exactly, we, added, we now use chemicals to replace things that biological action used to bring about. So I think the solution is to reintegrate things, to have, uh, as we were just discussing, animals and plants raised together, and we haven't talked very much about it, but the fungi are a really important part of this as well. On a microscopic level, the fungi actually perform an incredibly important service, especially like below ground. They do a lot of the work in the carbon sequestration that happens when you get the energy from the sun taken by the plant and put into the soil in the form of carbon. There's a lot of um, very important parts of that whole process that are aided by Fungi. So we need to have lots, we need to have all the components, plants, animals, and fungi, and understand that these things are all connected and they work together and come up with systems that understand biology and try to mirror nature. And there are wonderful examples of it. I mean, I just mentioned Gabe Brown's farm in North Dakota. He's a tremendous... Know, pioneer and spokesperson for regenerative agriculture, but I've been on many farms and ranches. I was just visiting a small one in Michigan a couple of weeks ago. A young, a young woman is running it that where she's experimenting with some of these very ideas of complex um, systems with animals and plants together and, and diverse forms of crops. And just showing how this creates more life. You have life that begets life and that, be, and that creates healthier food as well.
0: Well, you know, we had, um, that it's like going back back to to our way of doing it in years ago that, uh, like I said, with my father's farming and ranching, it it's, sounds like you're advocating going backwards to the way we used to do it to a certain extent. However, our population has blown up since then, and I hear the argument, we can't feed everybody from the old practices. What do you have to say about that?
1: Yeah, well, I like to say... I think there was a lot of really important knowledge and really wise practices that were used traditionally. So we need to reclaim that and you know and, and make sure we're not losing that, but go forward at the same time. So we're, there's a great deal more knowledge and understanding now about some of these comp- complex relationships we've been talking about especially at the microscopic level. Um, the, the substance that's co- that coats the roots of the plants, it's called glomalin that actually causes the plant to um, engage in exchange with the soils, give it the carbon and get the nutrients that it needs. That substance was just discovered within the last 20 years by USDA soil scientists. So there are all kinds of wonderful research happening all over the world that's new, that helps us know how to do this better. But what we, what we do know is that we don't need to sacrifice production, you know, ability to feed people by doing this. Uh, there are, these are very productive systems. You know, um, I keep bringing him up again, but he's such a good example. Gabe Brown's farm and his farm, he found that he produces a great deal more total nutrition from his farm now that he has co- complex systems that are much more biologically based and he's pretty much abandoned all use of chemical inputs now because all of these systems support each other. And he's producing food that is not just more abundant, but he's also producing more nutrient-dense food. And he's been measuring that. A lot of people are beginning to measure the nutrient value of different foods that they're producing on these regenerative farms. And they're finding dramatically higher levels. For example, if you have an egg that's raised on grass you will actually have twice as much vitamin E in that egg. And that's just one example. I mean, there's tons of good research on this now. So we can produce more nourishing food when we use regenerative systems and there's more and more evidence that the quantity of food is not necessarily gonna be diminished either. It's just more complex and it's more, it takes more know-how, it takes more human work, right? It's not so dependent on machinery and chemicals. And, you know, some people say, well, we don't have the manpower to do that, the person power, but I've met um, dozens and dozens of young people coming into farming, like the young woman I was just with in Michigan a few weeks ago, and these are people that are um, passionate about regenerative agriculture. And there's a whole sort of um, population of young people coming into farming with a passion for regen- regenerative farming. So I think we can, we, we will get the people that we need to make these systems. Well, we're
0: we're gonna to have to pick up on the people factor on the other side of another commercial break. Nicolette and I will return to our discussion shortly. So you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to listen to past episodes or archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. Our guest this hour is Nicolette Hahn-Nyman. We're speaking about ecologically sound ranching and farming. Nicola, you were talking about the human factor and and, um, how the the ranching and farming that you're suggesting we move into is going to be more work intensive. However, the one thing that has become glaringly obvious um, recently is people don't like to work anymore. How are you going to work around that?
1: Well interestingly the pandemic has actually got people moving out of cities in you know much of the western world and certainly in the United States and there's more and more interest and demand for you know rural uh, property and I think it's actually going to have, you know, kind of oddly, I think it might be one of the upsides of the pandemic, is that we're going to see more people wanting to be on the land and living in rural areas. There was already a little bit of a, you know, a swing in that direction. As as I was just talking about, I've met young people all over the country, and actually, um, my husband Bill and I gave the keynote speech at the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barns in New York a, a few years ago, and there were hundreds of young people attending. None of whom that we spoke with had grown up on a farm. This was a whole new generation of people. Almost all of them had gone to college and started some other career, but they became really passionate about regenerative food production, sustainable, ecologically beneficial food production. And they were looking for opportunities all over the country to do internships on farms and to start their own farms and to rent land to farm and, you know, in all different kinds of ways they were trying to get into it. So I think we're going to see, I mean, I think there's a lot that you know, we as consumers can do and as, that the government can do to help make this happen. Um, but I think we should be assisting this new generation of farmers that want to start on the land. And I think that they're, they're there. They, they need support, um, but they're going to be there.
0: You know, it, it sounds like what you're talking about is breaking the land up into smaller portions um, and having it hand farmed. How is that going to work out? Is that going to increase the local farming so there's less shipping? Um, How how do you see that benefiting? Because chopping
1: things into smaller pieces might
0: be problematic.
1: Yeah, well, I don't, it doesn't necessarily need, I think from a farming perspective, we should have more diversity. We shouldn't have large areas. You know, if you drive through Kansas or Iowa or anywhere in the upper Midwest, you see vast areas of, um, you know, Soy or you know corn or whatever, um, pretty much usually soy or corn, and I don't think that's ecologically a good thing. Um, But as far as I'm not advocating, you know, the government goes in and breaks up land ownership or anything like that. But I do know a lot of people in agriculture that are in their 60s or 70s that are looking for ways. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen to their land when they, you know, when they cross over or they don't want to farm anymore, they're not able to farm anymore. And I think it would be a beneficial thing for all of us if the young people who are trying to get into farming are able to get get a hold of some of that land through whatever kinds of loans we might be able to make available, or you know, programs that help them in internships. And there are some of these happening. So I'm glad to see that there are young farmer programs both on state and national level. But I think from an ecology standpoint, again, what we want is complexity and diversity. So if the large monocrop farms end up being split into smaller um, you know, land holdings. I think that's a beneficial thing. So I'm certainly not advocating that we, you know, force that to happen. But I think enabling it to happen when people want to, you know, uh, sell their land is a good thing.
0: So that brings up another uh, topic. These huge fields full of corn and soy are usually to feed the animals. Where do you stand on grain-fed versus grass-fed cattle? And how are we going to manage that one?
1: Yes, well, I think what I say in my book Defending Beef is that I understand the value of grain feeding and feeding you know, soy and grain to cattle and other animals, especially for the grazing animals because you have seasonal fluctuations, obviously, based on what's happening on the land. And the reason why the grain feeding was developed in the first place in the United States, the feedlots arose because, not just because there wasn't as much to eat on the land and you had you know, bulges in grass supply, but because you had bulges in the animal supply and that made the slaughtering and processing very problematic because all of the animals would be ready for slaughter at the same time of year. And so what the grain feeding did is it sort of flattened out the seasons and it made it possible to have this processing infrastructure year round. So that makes sense, right? So how do we manage that if we want to transition? I I believe we should have animals on grass as much as possible. And I think we should be shifting toward that. That doesn't mean we immediately abolish feedlots, but I think that there are ways that we can, again, as consumers, we can be buying grass-fed beef. There's a lot of good reason to do that. And as people in agriculture, we can be figuring out ways to have our animals on grass as much as possible and making, and any government policy should be fostering that because we know we have all these beneficial impacts when we have good grazing that I've been talking about. And you don't get that when you have the animals in a feed pond. So there are a lot of reasons to transition to a more grass-based system. And there's been some really good articles and reports advocating for that. People that are like me, advocates of livestock and the value of livestock in the food system, but really believe that we should have more and more grazing of the animals versus feeding them in confinement. I think it's the right thing to do.
0: Do you feel that the uh, grass-fed beef is like we were talking the vegetables, um, more nutritious than the grain-fed and grain-finished?
1: Yes, there's very good research on that. That's been done in many different universities and other places. And the most obvious effect is that the fat changes. So the um, you have a a lot more um, omega three in a grass fed animal versus Um, you know, a grain finished animal. And there's that whole ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 which shifts quite dramatically as well. So you have a much more favorable ratio of omega-3 and 6 and you have a higher content of omega-3. But there's other research as well that's been done Places Like University of Georgia and University of California have done research showing that pretty much everything is higher in in grass finished meats you have um, more calcium, you have more many different um, nutrients that are present. And it's also been shown that you even have um, basically phytonutrients nutrients that come from the grass that are present in the flesh and in the milk when the animals have been on grass that totally disappears. Um, And those actually are things that can be um, anti-cancer fighting, anti-inflammatory. There are many beneficial health effects from those um, micronutrients basically that are um, just beginning to be researched and discovered. So um, there's very good research showing that grass fed uh, eggs, meat and milk are all healthier for humans
0: in in nature let's go back to the circle of life in nature how how much grain
1: do um uh, graze animals uh, eat well yeah that's the thing they don't eat a lot they do eat some you know we've always observed the cattle on our ranch love in the season where there are grass seeds, you know, whether it's the rye or other types of wild grass seeds. We have a a perennial rye on our ranch and we have other many other types of grasses. And we notice that the animals will just kind of clip the tops and just take those, they love the grain, right? But it's a tiny portion of their diet. They're eating a lot of grass, a lot of fiber all the time. And they're eating that grain just seasonally and when it's available and there's not very much. So it's a small amount. So this is part of the reason I would never argue that it's totally wrong to feed grain uh, to cattle. But I also think we should understand and respect the physiology and the biology of the animals that we're raising for food, whatever those animals are. And when you really look at a typical system, a grazing system, the cattle will eat very small amounts of grain. And the problems for their own health, as well as the sort of ecological questions we've been talking about, only start when they're feeding large amounts they are eating large amounts of that and not eating, not grazing you know when when an animal is grazing it's walking you know it's getting exercise it's consuming a lot of uh, fiber, you know, it's foraging basically. When it's in a feedlot, it doesn't move very much at all. And it's just eating a very high, a very concentrated ration. And so it's a totally different thing for the physiology of the animal. And what our experience has been is that the animals are very healthy, they're vibrant and full of life. And you have very few health problems when you have them, you know, on a good grazing situation. So I, I think that's really the system we need to all be moving towards.
0: What about the environmental impact of greenhouse gases and methane emitted from cattle?
1: Yeah, that's a big question that a lot of people have. And in my book Defending Beef, I devote a lot of pages to discussing it because it's um, an important topic that needs to be explored. But the, the sort of shorter answer is that the methane issue has really been misunderstood. And I think A lot of attention has been paid to the methane from cattle because people see the cattle on their landscape. And they hear about methane from cattle and then they think well that's a bad thing that we have cattle out there grazing because it's causing methane well. Just, just in the last couple of months on my Facebook page, I've been posting a series of articles about the methane from natural gas production. And there's all kinds of new research that's just come out in the last few months even, where they're measuring methane leaks in Europe and in the United States, and showing that this is a massive source of methane, and it isn't even uh, measured or regulated. And those don't do anybody any good, right? They don't even generate energy. They're just basically a waste product, an uncontrolled leak from fossil fuel production. So I'm not, you know, against fossil fuel production entirely. (laughs) I think we need to try to get away from fossil fuel dependence. But When you look at that, that's a huge methane source and nothing's being done. The methane from cattle, on the other hand, is a a natural source of methane. We've always had ruminant animals. We had more ruminant animals in prehistoric times than we do today when you include all the domesticated animals. And so we really have this historic load of methane that's from the grazing animals. And unlike carbon dioxide, which when it's emitted, is it um, goes into the atmosphere and it stays there, so it's called a stock gas because it just builds up more and more. Methane actually breaks down really quickly, and it goes a lot of it goes back into the natural world, and its its lifespan is only about ten years. So people like uh, Dr. Miles Allen an Oxford University, physicist who's a methane expert argues we really shouldn't even be treating methane in the same way that we treat carbon dioxide and we shouldn't be talking about it the same way because it breaks down so quickly and goes back into the earth in various different forms. And um, so I, I just kind of think of the methane thing as a red herring. It isn't that we shouldn't be concerned about the methane from cattle, but it's a far less severe problem than people believe. And there are good solutions that grazing reduces methane They've even shown that um, a little bit of seaweed added to feed you can put it, you know, out for cattle even if they're on grass. You can put a little bit of seaweed into a, you know, into a free choice mineral um, mix, and they'll just get a little bit, and that reduces their um, methane output by as much as 99%. So there are lots of solutions to it, but more importantly, I think it's just an issue that's been really overblown and misunderstood.
0: So another argument, of course, is that of water. Uh, is raising beef too water expensive?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a problem that people are focused on. And again, I think you know, with all these issues, there's a little bit of truth to it. So, um, water is an issue in all of agriculture. The, the world, you know, the world has less and less water in terms of how much is clean and usable for everything that humans need it for. So we need to be careful with water. We need to take good care of it. But the idea that raising beef is Too water intensive is just wrong because, first of all, beef is comparable to other foods in terms of how much water it uses. So I go through the research in a lot of detail in my book, Defending Beef, but basically it boils down to this, a pound of beef is about the same water as a pound of rice so oh, you know there are other foods that we consume chocolate is water intensive sugar is water intensive there are lots of other kinds of foods that we consume beef is not really an outlier when it comes to water but also well, we're, one- we're going to have oh, to look sorry. at the
0: we're going to have to look at the water issue on the other side of yet another okay. commercial break <laughs> nicole and i will be back shortly to continue our discussion so don't go away this is mission evolution with Gilda wiecka For more information or to listen to our past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. To find out more about me, Goulda my school, and the other evolutionary tools we offer, visit findyourpathhome.com. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Nicolette Han nyman Nicolette, you mentioned your Facebook page, and people can find out more about you there. How, How do people find your Facebook page or whatever social media you're on?
1: Yes, I have a Defending Beef uh, Facebook page. It's just under Defending Beef and the same thing for Twitter. So we have a Defending Beef Twitter handle and we post a lot of information about food, health, nutrition, grazing. It's it's something we have. A, we have people in the food industry that are active on it. We have people in farming and people that are just general consumers that are interested in these topics. So it's a good place to follow if you're interested in what I'm what we're talking about today.
0: Wonderful. We were talking about beef and water. And water is a closed system. So it's not like we're running out of water. What we're running out of is drinkable water. Mm-hmm. Um, is that correct?
1: Yes. So it's what's important is that humans understand, as you say, the water can, you know, it's continually cycling on the earth. But there's a kind of a finite amount of water that is Un, you know, uncontaminated and is usable for drinking and, and you know, other human purposes. So in agriculture, we're always trying to make sure we're conserving water and that we're not contaminating water. And a moment ago, we were talking about the quantity of water. And I was saying that there's not an sort of an unusual, you know, it's not an unusually water intensive crop to produce cattle and to produce beef. It, it's, it's kind of in line with a lot of other foods that we eat, like chocolate and sugar and uh, rice, but the other side of the equation is water, you know, keeping the water pristine, and what is interesting to me as a water quality attorney, someone who focused on that for several years for environmental groups, is how much I've learned about how where you have good grazing systems, where you have cattle especially, and you graze well and you manage them well, you actually protect water quality. You have better water quality. And the reason for that is because you have more vegetation that covers the earth. And that ends up acting and and, and healthier soils. And when you have that situation, the water that falls as rain ends up being filtered better to the groundwater and also the runoff that goes into the streams is cleaner as well. And so you actually have a net benefit to water quality where you have good grazing systems.
0: There's, um, uh, I'm a backpacker, was, (laughs) you know, we all get old. But um, when I first started in the Colorado Rockies, you could go to a stream and you could drink your fill and you never had a problem. And later on, because of all the livestock that were also, grazing um, in the mountains on these lands, Giardia became a real issue and still is a real issue. Would you speak to that a little bit, please?
1: Yeah, so that's a a situation. There's there's definitely good evidence that if you have livestock um, near watercourses and you don't manage them well, you're gonna have a trampling effect. They trample the vegetation on the stream banks And that's really where the problem comes from. So, because what you really wanna have whenever you have a water course is you wanna have vegetation growing up on the stream banks and that helps keep the water course pristine through the filtration we were just talking about. So that's, again, that's kind of a management issue. On our ranch, what we do is we actually have all of the water courses fenced off. So our cattle cross over on sort of um, passages that we've made that go over the water and then they never go into the water banks and it's not so much the direct contamination as much as it is um, the trampling of the vegetation on the stream banks from what I've learned over the years and that's something that should be addressed through better management again you don't want to get rid of the cattle because of something like that you want to improve the management it's not the cow it's the how
0: (laughs) I love that not the cow it's the how. Right now we've been talking about how shifting over from um, our chemicalized, fertilized, artificially fertilized food sources where it's grown in mass and our uh, current way of feedlot and feeding our cattle grain to feeding them um, grass and, and very little grain and having them fertilize the soil for our crops. This is a huge shift from where we are how do we get there from here?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very important and huge question. And some people will say, well, that's just too big of a shift. And because it's such a big shift, we can't do it. <laughs> and I don't believe that at all. I've seen dramatic shifts in all kinds of systems, including the food system that have happened over, you know, since the last couple of decades. So I think we can get there. And I think we have to get there because of everything we've been talking about in terms of the, our environment and in terms of human health. And I think it comes from a lot of different ways. One thing we need to do is we need to have better government policy. We still have a lot of farm policy, farm subsidies that are actually subsidizing the kind of large industrial monocrop type system that we have today. we I don't oppose uh, agricultural subsidies. I actually think they can be a force for good. But I think that when we give subsidies to farmers, it should be for the things we've been talking about, making young farmers able to get into farming, making systems more complex and more diverse, reintroducing animals into systems and making them look more like natural systems. So one thing is, um, you know, good, better farm policy on the federal and state level. Another thing is what each of us can do as consumers. So each of us can seek out, even in small ways, if we just seek out um, one or two things like eggs, I often say, just try to find a really good source of pasture-based eggs in your community and you'll start to see how much better they taste and they have a lot more nutrition in them. And then when people begin en masse to seek out food from their local farms and their local sources, it will help rebuild regional food systems, which I think are really part of the solution. So it's gonna take time and it's not gonna happen. There's no one silver bullet. You know, I think we need to do a better job teaching agriculture in schools and in colleges. I think we need to teach people how to cook again, starting in school, You know, starting in elementary school. I think there are many, many things we need to be doing to make our food system healthier and more ecologically sound but we need to start right away, you know, I mean, there's a lot going on. So we need to keep going, we need to keep going forward, not throw up our hands, and um, recognize this is really important and necessary for human survival, and for long term health for all of us.
0: I've been fortunate in that where I moved, uh, I'm up in a very small community. Um, off, I'm off grid and and out of the community. But within the community, there's a lot of retired people, believe it or not, that have gone into this kind of farming and getting a small piece of property with their with their retirement and um, rotating crops and introducing livestock to the situation and selling. You know, grass. Uh, grown grass finished beef and the people up here will tend to buy that grass finished beef in its season and then you know buy it in bulk and then freeze it is that going to be some kind of solution do you think going down you know going forward as we come together as communities and uh, start to produce our own food and start to work with the seasons that way
1: Yes, I think I think that's I don't think there's any one solution, but I do think I also know a lot of people and ourselves included (laughs) who who have chest freezers and who will buy, uh, you know, when it's seasonally available, grass fed um, pork and beef and other meats and um, we'll buy a large piece of it and store it and then use it over time. And you need to learn some things about butchering by, you know, by doing it that way. But it's actually very interesting and fun. And there are lots of books nowadays, there are lots of videos nowadays showing you how to do this, how to cut the meat, how to cook it. And it's, you know, to me, it's part of the sort of reclaiming of traditional knowledge that a lot of people have lost that most people don't have anymore. And I think it's a really good way to reconnect with our food and with our you know community where our food is from. So yes, I think that's part of the solution.
0: And I've noticed personally, of course, this is just objective, um, uh, subjective that Since I've been living like that, my consumption of food has gone way, way, way down. It takes much less to satisfy me, and I'm much happier eating food in its season, uh, whether it's meat or vegetables, um, and I'm much healthier. So what's the outlook for people as, you know, the, the thing is we're doing this dance. We've been living in diminishing returns. We've been stripping the soil. We've been making our animals sick, putting trauma in the meat. And now we've kind of hit up against a wall in that, and we're unhealthy as a result. How do you think we can turn this around in time? And if we can, what can the individual do to help that process?
1: Yes, I think what you just described, Wilda, is so correct, that the the industrialized system, the industrial way of producing food, produces All kinds of downstream effects, both to the environment and to human health. And we're beginning to kind of see that very clearly now in the large scale, you know, diet related diseases in our human population and there's more and more attention being paid to the, you know, as you said, the trauma to the animals. There are so many problems to that industrialized way of producing food. And more and more people are recognizing that you can eat more seasonally, as you said, eat more locally, eat um, animals that are raised on grass. And I I as well have experienced, not just personally, but also many people I've spoken to that have told me that they're much healthier, they're much happier now that they're eating in, um, they're not eating as much industrial food. They're not eating ultra processed food they're getting as much as they can from their local community, they're cooking more, they might even be having their own garden. I think, um, I think it's a, a really positive thing that's happening. And again, I think the pandemic has pushed it forward a little bit. And I think that's a really good thing. So it, it's not going to change overnight. But I think it is definitely the direction and. The good news is that I meet people every day that are in their 20s or 30s that are super interested in this and believe this is the way forward. So they they kind of look at, you know, people in their, you know, retirement years as, as having gone down that pathway, and they say, I don't want to do that. You know, I want to eat a different way. I want to live a different way. It's not everybody, obviously, but there is a large body of people in their 20s and 30s that are recognizing they want to be part of a whole different way of eating and farming.
0: It's, it's a wonderful thing because uh, my father crossed. He was 98, 99, a farmer, rancher, and he grew up eating like this. And he had very few health problems and lived a long time. Yeah. And now our people are having health problems in their 20s and 30s and not living as long. Yeah. It's starting to become obvious. And I think people are looking for a change. So, Nicola, what you're doing is wonderful. Um, I want to ask you, what is your mission?
1: Well, I've learned a lot about the food system. I've learned a lot about the way we raise food, about the way we prepare, or the way we eat. And the more time I've spent on this, the more I think these big picture, you know, ideas are, they're all connected. You know, we can't just focus on, you know, I started out just working on the environmental impacts from concentrated livestock, and that was kind of my entry point. But now I'm much more interested in the kinds of things we've been talking about today, how all these things are connected, you know, how we're treating the animals and the plants and how we're, um, how we're, raising things in terms of food and what that means for our earth over the long-term and our soils and what it means for our own bodies and 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 just cooking and preparing food and eating meals together as a really important part of human culture. So I'm interested in helping to rebuild uh, a food system that is based on respect for the earth, respect for animals, respect for our own bodies, respect for our neighbors and connections and making nature more our guiding principle and being, thinking of ourselves as part of nature, learning from nature's models and trying to emulate that rather than saying, you know, well, we're humans, we don't need to pay any, you know, that was a long time ago that we had to care about nature. I think we really need to turn back to it and reclaim it.
0: Nicolette, time flies and unfortunately we are out of it. I've so enjoyed our time together. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Our guest this hour has been Noca- no- Nicolette Han-Nyman, a rancher, former environmental attorney, and author of Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiyaka. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to an evolving world.